0: I love when we get together as a church family and sing together the praises of God. Um, Tonight, we just sang a song that was written a couple of years ago, or a couple hundred years ago, by John Newton. The first song we sang tonight was written approximately 1225 A.D., And the one in the middle is a brand new song. In fact, one of the songs we sang Friday night at the Good Friday service was actually written three weeks ago. And uh, thanks to uh, the internet, it gets around quickly now. And it was a great song. I'm not sure it was that one or another one. But we love to sing here at Riverbend Church. We love to worship. And um, we're commanded to sing. But it's our privilege to sing And Hayward does such a great job of selecting songs that are full of truth, full of praise. Because really, when we go into the world every day, we always have to have our filter on. From what we hear and what we see and even what we think, we need to have that biblical filter. But we come in here and the songs that have been chosen, you can back that filter down just a little bit because you can be confident we're going to be singing uh, truth together. And so we, uh, we sing songs that are Christ-honoring and gospel-focused and full of truth. And I'm grateful to the Lord for Hayward, for the musicians, that uh, they're always rehearsing, always preparing new songs. And uh, some of us, when we come to church, we just come. But they've got a lot of preparation each week so that they can help lead us in singing the songs of praise. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, for this evening, we give you thanks. We thank you for your many blessings. Father, we are to be a people of thanksgiving, continually, continually offering up a sacrifice of praise to you. Father, I pray that you would help us tonight as we look to your word, and um, I pray that we might be um, encouraged as we look to the word tonight to live more faithfully for you, to love the Lord Jesus Christ even more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we launch tonight, I want to begin with a couple of verses found in Psalm chapter 29. And um, I believe that's on your printed notes there. Psalm Twenty-nine verses 1 and 2, and we're going to be talking tonight about developing a biblical view of worship. And um, as you think about worship, I want you to think about this for a minute. What definition of the word worship might come to mind? And and there's a lot of definitions out there, and... um, I'm not sure that any of them totally encapsulate biblically what that means. But there are certain thoughts that probably come to mind. Listen to what's written here in Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. And so we are to worship the Lord. Worship is far more than just singing. Singing's part of it. It's an overflow of our worship, but it doesn't totally encapsulate worship. Really, when we come together as believers on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, yes, we sing songs of worship, but proclamation of the Word of God is worship. When we pray together... That is worship. When we give, um, we're worshiping the Lord. So as we choose songs to sing, sometimes we get asked this question. Do we sing songs that are written or published by people that we don't agree with everything they believe? Good question. And it's something we have talked about uh, among the elders and have considered and have prayed about. And um, I, I first came across with some decisions related to this. Early in the ministry, this was late 70s, early 80s. And we, were, uh, we had our group of songs that we sang from. And um, a, several of them were written by this one particular Uh, gospel composer and artist. And then the news came out that he had been arrested for possession of cocaine. And I was duly enraged and immediately pulled all those songs out of our repertoire. And I was disgusted. But then, a few months later, the charges were dropped and he was exonerated. So I went and got all the songs and brought them back in. (laughs) But I began to consider, is that what I need to be doing, is just checking up on people all the time and see if they've been good this week before we sing their song? And that could be pretty um, busy. It would require a lot of time. Um, What if somebody writes an article maybe in a journal and uh, it appears to be not exactly theologically correct? Do I go and pull their songs? But then they write a follow-up article the next month that clarifies their biblical position, and so then we continue to sing those songs. What if you hear a rumor about a writer of songs that you don't know if it's true or not, but do you just pull those songs? And you could see how tedious uh, that would be to do that. So as we've talked and prayed about that, here's the conclusion that we have come to. Um, And this is the direction for Riverbend Church. And it can be summed up in three simple words. We sing truth. We sing truth. That we love the truth. We love to sing about it. We love to talk about it. We love to proclaim it because all men are flawed. The fact is anyone who's written any song that we ever sing was a sinner saved by grace. And it's not fully sanctified yet. So do we have standards? Absolutely we have standards. Do we have convictions? Absolutely we have convictions. But that is the conviction we have, is that we sing truth. We want you to have the confidence when you come and you see lyrics on the screen that what we're singing has been thought through, has been carefully examined, and it is um, true as defined by the Word of God. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 15, we're instructed to rightly divide the word of truth. And that's how we slice that, is by the word of God. That is our standard. So if we preach the whole counsel of God and we do that, should we not also sing the whole counsel of God and teach the whole counsel of God and speak of, the whole counsel of God. So in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 12, it speaks about the precision of scripture. And it says here, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and and, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so scripture very precisely uh, slices those things. In John chapter 17, Jesus was praying there his high priestly prayer. And one of the things he prayed is, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth so the word of God doesn't just contain the truth it is the truth and the Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 14 I am the way the truth and the life so we have the written word and the living word in agreement there so we love truth so after everyone has spoken their opinion, after all the bloggers have made their case, after all those who are wise in their own eyes have pontificated their godless philosophies, after all the politicians have given their self-perceived wisdom, after all the news anchors have spouted their opinions, after time has completed its course, and after all the dust has settled... Only the word of God will stand. And that's what we want to build our lives on, is the word of God. God's truth is eternal. In Matthew 24, 35, it says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. And that same uh, verse, uh, almost word for word, is also found in Mark and Luke. In Psalm 119, verse 89, it says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. So we want to be a church that is known for proclaiming the truth of the word of God and singing the truth of the word of God. So as we choose songs, some of the songs we sing are very old. And... um, Tonight, we sing all creatures of our God and King. We sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of my favorite hymns of all time, written by Martin Luther. But Luther was suffering persecution. He was being pursued because of his biblical convictions. And so he sat down and penned the words to this great hymn, he wrote it in German. The title in German was Ein and It is based on Psalm chapter 46. And so history tells us that often when he was being pursued, there were times that he was in hiding. There's a time that we know that he actually disguised himself. But during this time of being pursued in persecution, he would often turn to his good and faithful friend, Philip Melecton, and he would say this, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th Psalm. And they would often do that. I can't help but think how many believers through the ages have sung that song. It's not just our generation, but it connects us to believers from times past. I suspect, and probably is true, that that psalm, that hymn was sung by some who were martyred for their faith. And so in that sense, we're connected to them, not in a um, mystical sense, but in a historical sense. But we wouldn't agree with Martin Luther on some of his beliefs. In fact, we would strongly disagree with some of them. Now, he did reject, reject transubstantiation But he had his own version that was different called consubstantiation. And he believed that when communion was served, um, the actual physical body and blood of Christ were present. And we would believe that is totally symbolic. He also was quite anti-Semitic. And we would stand strong against that. So, do we sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? Absolutely. Because it's full of truth, it's Christ-exalting, and uh, we can sing it with great conviction. So, two two Wednesday nights ago, we sang, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Actually, that is the theme song of Riverbend Academy. And what a great hymn it is. So, all creatures of our God and King... We just mentioned that, 1225 A.D., great song. We love singing it. It was written pre-Reformation, but it was written by a man. His name was St. Francis of Assisi. He was not a sissy. He came from a town called Assisi. But we would disagree with some of his convictions. He had some very strange views about animals. It's told that he would be on the road and he would stop and preach to the birds. I don't think that's something that we would uh, encourage our people to do, to stop and preach to the birds. So we don't agree with everything he believed, and yet do we sing this great hymn? Absolutely. It's full of truth. We sing truth. Another example, Horatio Spafford, Wrote a great hymn that we love to sing here, It Is Well With My Soul. And you, you probably re- remember the story how his wife and uh, children were sailing to London. They were from Chicago. He stayed back to care for some business. And that boat they were on sunk, and the kids all drowned, the daughters, and uh, his wife was spared. And then he set sail to join up with his wife. And when he got out approximately where that took place, he sat down and began to pen these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It's a great hymn about the sovereignty of God and trusting in God. But we also know that Spafford did not finish his life well at all. So do we sing this great hymn? Absolutely. We sing it with great conviction because we sing truth. That is our standard. So I think it's important that we sing some of these songs from the past. One of my favorite hymns Is Great is Thy Faithfulness. We sing that here. And um, I remember as a small boy standing in church with my mom on one side, my dad on the other, and we were singing that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. We were holding hymnals back then. But I remember seeing my parents, they sang that with great conviction. And um, a few years later, I was older and um, I had three siblings. And I remember our whole family standing in a row there. We were singing, great is thy faithfulness. Um, During my teen years, I came to faith. And um, my heart was changed and I was regenerated. And I began began, uh, a new adventure in life as a believer, part of the family of God. And then as we sang that hymn, all of a sudden I started having some great conviction as I sang it. Because... Christ had saved me. He was faithful. And I could sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Well, fast forward a little bit. I'm in my 20s now. I'm married. We have a couple small children. And I'm serving a church down in Bradenton. And we are singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And at that point in my life, i had been through some events in my life that I realized with even greater conviction that our God is faithful. Well, before I knew it, literally, we had seven children and we were all in a row singing, guess what? (laughs) Great is thy faithfulness. And now we're singing with incredible conviction. Then, fast forward just a little bit, and all of a sudden, I'm a senior adult. I don't know how that happened so quickly. But I've got a lot of life now to look back on. A lot of um, circumstances. A lot of hard times. A lot of times that I really had to trust the Lord. And He proved faithful. Faithful. Through all of that. And now I sing with incredible conviction Great is thy faithfulness. It's important that we sing some of these songs. So last summer, I got a call from my family. So on a Sunday morning early, and they said, We think you should come over to Bradenton. Um, that uh, my dad was very close to death. My dad loved the Lord, faithfully served him, incredible example. And, um, by the time I got over there, I left right after church. By the time I got over there, he was, um, he was unresponsive. He was in a coma. And so I wasn't able to talk to him or anything, but, um, That night, we gathered around his bed. There was about 12 of us in the family, and we just began to sing hymns. We just began to sing songs that we had sung together through the years. We began to quote verses that were meaningful. We began to read passages of Scripture. One of the songs we sang was, Great is Thy Faithfulness. But we noticed as we were singing that my dad was singing. He had come to, and not only was he singing, but he was singing every word. Even the second and third stanzas. He had every word down. And we had a wonderful time that night. Um, My sister asked him, Dad, what song would you like to sing? And I'll never forget his answer. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. We sing that song. There's simply something that's very deeply edifying when we sing these great songs of the faith that have some history with them and have been sung by saints of the past. So we sing some of these old songs, not because they're old, but because they're good. And not all of them are good, and we don't sing those. So we carefully select those songs. But you know what? We also sing new songs. It's important that we sing new songs. In fact, doesn't the Bible tell us to? We're commanded to. Every generation has a fresh expression of its faith. And it seems like throughout church history, every time there was a fresh expression, The previous group rejected it and stood against it. So way back in the days when we were singing as a church plain song, Gregorian chant, which was just unison singing. Everybody was singing the same notes. It was a cappella. And then somebody decided we should add harmony to this. And many people were outraged because people were singing harmony. They were singing like a bass part, and a tenor part. And this was horrible. The church is becoming like the world. And, um, and there was resistance to that. Later on, they were singing harmony, but they were pretty much staying in a minor key. It wasn't too aggressive. It wasn't uh, too forward. And, uh, and then somebody started putting a major third on the final chord. We call that a Picardy third, and all of a sudden they just ruined the whole song by putting a major chord at the end, and uh, there was great resistance to that. Many of the songs later just had very straightforward rhythms, and then somebody started singing very rhythmic songs, and um, it was rejected by many people. Now, we know that many of the Jewish songs in the Old Testament are very rhythmic. And we believe that Jesus sang those. And um, so then we get to the 20th century and we should sing only accompanied by the organ. Preferably the pipe organ. Now, I love the pipe organ. I'll, I'll go to a recital and love every minute of it. But somebody decided we should have a piano. And then somebody else, a guitar. And then somebody else, a drum set. Where is this going to end? And then there tends to be rejection. And yet, the Bible says, we are to sing to the Lord a new song. Let, Let me challenge you with this. If you are a young person... Learn to appreciate and love and sing some of these old songs. I think it's important that we do that. And if you are someone who has lived many years, I was careful how I said that, learn to love new songs. It's exciting to see young people embracing their faith through singing enthusiastically these songs. And the fact is, the ones that we choose here There are songs you can sing with all of your heart because of the lyrics that are chosen. Psalm 98, verse 1 says this, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done wonderful things. Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And then in Revelation chapter 9, we were there just a moment ago, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So we choose new songs like In Christ Alone, Living Hope, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Is he worthy? (laughs) He is. And so we sing those songs. Let me encourage you with this. Let me challenge you with this. When you come to church, don't come as a critic. Come as a worshiper. Because if you come as a critic, it'll rob your joy. And it'll rob the joy of those around you. Instead, Come as a worshiper. But as as we think about the topic of worship, it's so much more than just music and singing because actually music is not required at all to worship the Lord. You can fully worship the Lord without any music. And um, so when we come on Sunday morning... Worship is far greater than that hour and a half that we spend together. Worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. Can I say that again? Worship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. So when we come to Christ and we are regenerated, we're justified, we're forgiven, we are adopted into his family, we become, at that point, worshipers. Maybe I should say this, we change who we worship. Maybe before we worship ourselves. Or something else. Because God made all of us to worship. And people everywhere around the world worship something. There's places where they worship cows. And they refuse to eat them. So the people are starving and there's steak dinners roaming around the whole country. Um, people will literally worship everything. There's people that worship the sun. People that worship the moon. Um, But when we become believers, we become worshipers every moment, every day. And so worship has something to do with exalting Christ. It has something to do with gratitude and thanksgiving because of what Christ has done in our lives. It reflects what we love supremely, it has to do with our priorities. So, the word worship, the English word worship, comes from an Anglo Saxon word, worth sip. And it literally means to attribute worth to where it belongs. It has to do with ultimate or superior worth. So, it begs the question what do we value? What do we treasure more than anything? What is your greatest delight? And I hope you can say tonight, my greatest delight, my greatest treasure is Christ. So tonight what I want to do, I I want to, as we consider developing a biblical view of worship, I think the best place to go to do that would be the Bible. And um, there's... there's certain words in the original language that are translated worship. And I want to look at three of them tonight and um, talk about exactly what those words mean and then go to the scriptures and find some examples of how they're used so that we can learn tonight about what the Bible says about biblical worship. So those who have the printed notes, just a heads up, I'm changing the order on you. So uh, be ready for that. So the first word we want to look at tonight is the Hebrew word, shakah, and it's Greek equivalent, proskuneo. And I'm pretty certain that's the right pronunciation because I actually went to Pastor Brian to ask him that and he, he helped me with that, proskuneo. So this word is used um, often in scripture the Old Testament, and then the Greek, of course, in the New Testament. This word means to pay homage. It speaks of kneeling. It speaks of laying prostrate before the Lord. It carries the idea of gratitude and certainly of humility. So as, as we think about kneeling and laying prostrate, I want to remind you that um, man looks on the outward things, but God looks on the heart. So I think if we focused on the outward, we um, we would probably do things like this. If I see somebody kneeling, I'm going to lay down. And if somebody sees me laying down on my face, they're going to dig a hole. And somebody else is going to dig one deeper because we're looking on the outward things. So I believe it really speaks of a heart that's humbled before the Lord. A heart that acknowledges that he is worthy. There's this idea of a lesser giving proper praise and homage to that which is greater. It's a heart that's humbled before the Lord. And the heart is what's important because if you go uh, to the Old Testament and you remember the minor prophet Amos, he um, lived in a day where the people went through all of their religious rituals. They went to the festivals. They did their sacrifices. They sang their songs. But the Bible says that their heart was far away from the Lord And listen to what the Lord says through Amos to these people. These are haunting words. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. Because God looks on the heart. So the outward is to be an expression of the inner man. So let's visit some passages in the Old Testament where the word shakah is used. So get your Bibles ready. We're going to turn to these. And let's begin in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis 24. So Abraham determined that it was time for his son Isaac to have a wife. And so he sent his faithful and trusted servant to go and find a wife for Isaac. He told him to go back to the land where the relatives lived. He wanted a wife for him that was not of those who worship pagan gods, but uh, were relatives that uh, Abraham and Isaac um, came from. And so you remember that he went to the well, and as he went there, he asked the Lord, please let the woman that comes here offer to draw water for me and also for my camels as a sign. Well, as he was praying, this woman comes up and does exactly that. So she draws not only for him, but also for the camels. And he was praising God because he had provided. His journey was a success. This was an amazing demonstration of the sovereignty and the provision of God. So let's look at verses 26 and 27. And let's see what he does at this point. Speaking of the servant, then the man bowed low and worshipped, Shakah, the Lord. He said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brother." He worshipped the Lord. He paid homage to the Lord. He humbled himself before the Lord. And then later he went with Rebekah to her uncle's home, Laban. And Laban said, let's sit down and eat. And uh, the servant said, no, before we eat, let me state my business. And he explained to him that his master Abraham had sent him to find a wife among his relatives And he asked for Rebekah to come back with him and be married to Isaac. And Laban agreed. Now before all that happened, there were some other things that happened. But Laban agreed and the servant responded in verse 52. Look down at verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. Shaka. So let's move to Exodus now. Look at Exodus chapter four. And look at another example of this word that's translated worship from the Hebrew Hebrew word shaka. So you remember that the Lord appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He said, Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And then he told him that the Lord was going to use Moses to go to Pharaoh and command him to let the people of Israel go and let them out of bondage. And that he had seen their suffering and he was going to deliver them through Moses of course you remember Moses asked who should I say sent me? He said tell them that I am sent sent you so he went to the people and he said the Lord has heard your prayers the Lord has heard your suffering I am here the Lord is going to deliver you out of this bondage so look at verse 31 Exodus 4 31 And here's the response of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low low and worshipped Shekha. Later in the book of Exodus, the people were at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses had gone up and was receiving the Ten Commandments, and while he was there, the people donated gold, melted it down, formed a golden calf, and began to worship that golden calf. They were sinning against the Lord, and the Bible says that the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he determined that he would destroy them for this great wickedness of worshiping a false god. Well, Moses went on their behalf and interceded on their behalf and asked God to have mercy. And the Lord did. And he replaced the tablets. He renewed the covenant he had made and did not destroy them. And so in verses 6 and 7, here is Moses' response here. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now look in verse 8. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Shakah. And so Moses responded to the provision and the loving kindness of the Lord by bowing in worship and humbling himself before a holy God. So let's move forward now to the book of Judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And so the Lord comes here to Gideon and he tells him that he is going to deliver the Midianites into his hand and that he would be victorious. And then in Judges chapter 7 and verse 15, when Gideon heard what the Lord said, let's read what it says here. Verse 15, when Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He bowed to worship, Shakah. And you remember the rest of the story. He had over 20,000 men there prepared for battle. And God told him to send most of them home. In fact, he said, any that are fearful, you can go. And that was still too many people. And the reason was because the mighty army would get the glory rather than the Lord. So when the Lord had finished paring down this army, it was down to 300 people. Uh, Surely there would be no glory there except for the Lord because no one could do that but the Lord. You remember the the battle tactic. Um, Broke the flasks and shouted. And then God calls the Midianites to begin to kill one another as great confusion happened. And the Lord delivered the Midianites into the hand of Gideon, just as he said he would. Now let's turn to the book of Job, right before Psalms. And you remember the story of Job, this righteous man. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that he is righteous and blameless? Look in um, chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Now look down at verse 20, and let's look at verses 20 through 22. So God had brought this great trial on Job, and he lost, his home, his his family, his animals. It seems like everything that he had possession-wise was taken. You remember the response of Job's wife. She said, curse God and die. Job did not. Here's what Job said, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. So even when we walk through trials, we are to worship the Lord. Even as Job did. So let's look at one more passage. Psalm 95. <clears throat> Excuse me. Beginning in verse 1, "O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord; let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation." Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now look down to verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Shaka. So let's move to the New Testament. It was interesting because I was thinking about these things last week. I I didn't know I was going to be preaching tonight, but these are just some things I've been reflecting on lately. And so we were reading um, the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and we got to... um, We got to Matthew chapter 28, and came upon verse nine. And so after the resurrection, the women came to the tomb. the angel told them to go into Galilee, and there they'll find him. And then Jesus met them in verse nine. It says, "And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they come up they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. So I was wondering, I wonder if that's that same word there in the Greek proskuneo. And certainly it was. We also find it in uh, let's look at a couple places in Revelation and then we need to move on. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. Of course this is future tense and the Lord has pulled back the curtain of heaven. And John was able to see all this, and he wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But chapter 4 of Revelation, beginning in verse 10, and here's what's taking place. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him, proskuneo, Who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. We see something similar in chapter 5. And then look at uh, chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 11 and 12 says this and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God Thank you so much appreciate it Ah oh, much better And worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so they worship there, and it's the same Greek word there. Well, we must move on. Let's look at a second word that is translated worship in Scripture. Let let me just say this. If you go to the passage in John chapter 4, and we're not going to turn there, but you remember the story of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. And Jesus had some of the greatest teaching about worship in the New Testament of that place. And it's that same Greek word there. Actually, in verses, um, I guess, 23 and 24, that word appears more than once. So the second word that is translated worship in Scripture, it's the Hebrew word liturgia. I cannot guarantee that's the right pronunciation. And then it has a Greek equivalent being doulian. But this word means to serve. We serve the Lord. We worship the Lord. Paul used to love to um, refer to himself as a bondservant of Christ. Uh, The word doulos is a derivative of this word. And we're reminded that we are no longer slaves to sin but now we're willing, joyful slaves of Christ. And so we serve him. So going back to Exodus, and we're not going to turn there because I need to move along quickly. In chapter 3, God appears to Moses, instructs him to remove his sandals, and he told him that he was going to confront Pharaoh and free the Hebrew people who had been in slavery now for 400 years. And... Listen to the response right here. Listen to this account. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that it is I who has sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. And that is that Hebrew word. You could say, you will serve God at this mountain or worship. And sometimes it's translated serve, sometimes it's translated worship. And then um, later... And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may go celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey? His voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. And that word sacrifice there is the same Hebrew word. We could say that we may go and worship the Lord or we may go and serve the Lord. That classic passage in um, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. And you remember that Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's the same Hebrew word. He could have said, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, you remember that's the place where the great commandment is given. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And then after that, it speaks about diligently instructing your children in the ways of the Lord. But then... In verse 13, it says this, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him. You shall serve him. You remember the passage in Psalm chapter 100, make a joyful noise of the Lord, uh, all the earth serve the Lord with gladness. It could be translated worship the Lord with gladness. In the New Testament, you go to Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable. And then in verse 2, and let me go there. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good, what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Back in verse 1, though, some translations says, present your bodies wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Other translations say, which is your spiritual worship. Well, both are correct. I love the way it says it in the NASB, which is your spiritual service of worship. And so that is the um, same Greek word there, this translated worship. So let's go to the third word now. It's the Hebrew word yare, the Greek equivalent, sabomi, sometimes Eushabia. But it speaks of this. It speaks of respect, reverence, fear. And it's translated many times to worship. And I'm not sure in the New Testament this is a cringing, trembling fear, although there were some of those in the Old Testament. You remember at the foot of Sinai that Thunder and lightning and the mountain was shaking and then the voice of God, in fact, it scared them so bad they said, we don't want to come back here again. Moses, you go for us. But it's important that we have the proper reverence, respect for God. I think it's important when when we pray that we remind ourselves who it is we're praying to. It's a holy God, a powerful God. The God who spoke creation into being. That is the God we're praying to. It bothers me when I hear people speak about God as though He were another man. Um, that is not giving proper respect. That is not worshipful So going back to that first verse in the book of Job, there was a man in us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God. And that's the word Yare. You've heard people speak of he was a God-fearing man. And this word is translated worship often. Uh, Just a couple of more examples, and then we need to wrap up. Jonah... You remember the Lord was going to send him to Nineveh. He did not want to go to Nineveh. He didn't like the Ninevites, and he knew that God was merciful. So he chose not to go. And you remember he got on the boat and sailed as far away from Nineveh as he could go. Well, this huge storm comes up, and they were afraid the boat was going to break up. It was beginning to break up and would sink. So they threw all the cargo overboard to lighten... The boat. The storm continued, and so they went to Jonah. And they they said this to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? Jonah replies, He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And that word, fear, the Lord God of heaven, could be translated, and I worship the Lord God of heaven. One more example. The book of Ecclesiastes So this book is talking about the futility of life and folly and all these things. But finally we get to the last chapter, the final two verses. And listen to what Solomon writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God. Yare. You could say, worship God. And keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And so those are three words in the scripture that are translated worship. So that brings us full circle. When we gather to sing praises in corporate worship, We want to pay proper homage to the Lord. We want to humble ourselves, have humble hearts before the Lord. We desire to serve the Lord and we have great respect, um, reverence for the Lord. I hope this is helpful tonight. Let's close in prayer. So, Father, we do desire to be biblical worshipers, to attribute to you the glory that is due your name. To worship the Lord, as one translation says, in the beauty of holiness. Father, thank you that you have made us to be worshipers. And so when we come to church, we don't begin worship. We continue worship because we live a life of worship. Father, I thank you for Riverbend Church and for its passion for truth, its passion to sing the praises of our great God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.